2: I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. After one full year of COVID, we're all looking for any way of getting out of the house we can find. And for avid skiers, that means hitting the slopes. But this winter, skiers are contending more frequently than usual with that most terrifying of warning cries, avalanche. Serena Altshul starts us off this morning.
3: Winter sports have offered people cooped up inside a welcome respite from the ravages of the pandemic. But the snowpack throughout the West has not always cooperated.
4: One of the accidents we had this last week, the avalanche itself, the the break in the snow, was uh, over 3,000 feet wide. Um, And that's triggered by a person.
3: Ahead on Sunday morning, a visit to avalanche country.
4: After that, we're in
2: conversation with actress Ellen Pompeo, star of the long-running TV series Grey's Anatomy. Just how much longer it will run is the mystery our Tracy Smith will be trying to get to the bottom of.
5: You're lost.
6: I'm not lost. Grey's Anatomy is the longest-running primetime medical drama on TV. And now, the burning question for the show's star and producer, Ellen Pompeo, is when... Or how to end it. Are you looking now? And I'm not trying to make you give anything away.
7: But are <laughs> yes, you, you, are, but not, you are. I'm not. sure are. Everybody does.
6: Okay, but still, her answer
2: might surprise you. Ellen Pompeo, later on Sunday morning. Maraca has a Sunday profile of actor LeVar Burton. Nancy Giles has a blast from the past. She's on the record with two co founders of The Fifth Dimension. Aaron Moriarty looks into charges of sexual harassment at McDonald's. Plus, Steve Hartman, Jim Gaffigan, and more on this last Sunday morning of the month, February 28th, 2021. We'll be right back. If you're on the slopes, there's no more frightening cry than the call avalanche. And as Serena Altschul tells us, it's been heard a lot this winter, with sometimes deadly results.
3: Mountain mornings above Ketchum, Idaho, often begin with cannon fire. The enemy avalanches. The Sun Valley Ski Patrol uses explosives to test the snowpack on the mountainside. It's one way Scooter Gardner, the head of snow safety for the resort, keeps his guests safe.
8: Our ultimate goal is to give the skiing customer as much skiable terrain as possible that is as safe as possible.
3: To the blissfully unaware, it might seem like overkill. This is all
9: avalanche terrain to the
3: left. Exactly, so it's a very fine line. But beyond the boundaries of America's ski resorts, the threat from avalanches is a very real part of mountain life. These snowmobilers got caught in an avalanche last month in Utah.
10: I heard Hunter yelling,
3: and here he is. You okay, bud?
1: Mm-hmm. All the snow is, is a horizontal representation of the season's weather.
3: To really understand the danger of snowpack on a steep slope, you have to dig a little deeper.
11: The more readily this slides off, that's gonna show
1: poor bonding between those layers.
3: Since the start of the pandemic, Enrollment in avalanche classes like this one by Sun Valley Guides has more than doubled with people looking to safely get away into America's wild and rugged backcountry. Mountain guide Chris Marshall walks students through the basics of search and rescue, terrain management, and critically, how to read layers of snow, like a geologist reads sediment.
11: WHEN YOU'VE GOT SNOW THAT LOOKS LIKE SUGAR, AND ESPECIALLY WHEN YOU CAN SEE THE INDIVIDUAL CRYSTALS WITH YOUR NAKED EYE, THESE ARE FACETS.
3: SNOW SCIENTISTS SAY CLIMATE CHANGE HAS HEIGHTENED AVALANCHE RISK. THROUGHOUT MUCH OF THE WEST, THERE WAS HEAVY FALL SNOW, FOLLOWED BY DROUGHT. THAT FORMED A WEAK LAYER, WHICH WAS THEN BURIED UNDER SEVERAL FEET OF SNOW prime conditions for the most dangerous type of avalanche.
12: What we call slab avalanches, you know, a cohesive plate of snow, like a magazine sliding off of an inclined table.
3: Bruce Tremper was the head of the Utah Avalanche Center for some 30 years before retiring in
12: 2015. uh, 93% of the time, uh, that avalanche is triggered by the victim or somebody in the victim's party. It means we have a choice. We can avoid avalanches if we want to uh, by
3: not triggering avalanches. In 1977, as a young member of the ski patrol at Bridger Bowl in Montana, He was warned to stay off of a slope that was a notorious avalanche path. Not that he listened.
12: And the first thing that happens, it feels like somebody pulls out the rug from underneath me and I flop down on the snow and it just pulled me downhill.
3: Tremper credits managing to grab a tree with saving his life. And I just
12: felt like I was underneath this huge waterfall getting pounded to death Suddenly, I was just tumbling down the slope, going head over heels and and all over the place. Hat, mittens, gone, skis, gone. I mean, snow was going everywhere, down my underwear, uh, under my eyelids. And um, when it came to a stop, I was buried like up to my chest.
3: When snow is moving down a slope, it often feels like water, but when it comes to rest, it tends to set like concrete. Had Trumper been fully buried, he might have had only about 15 minutes to live.
4: One of the really important misconceptions is that you can dig yourself out um, uh, if you get buried. And, you know, just because of how the avalanche flows, when you get buried, uh, the snow compacts. It's really, really hard.
3: Ethan Green is the director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center.
4: It certainly is going to be uh, one of the worst years in a long time. I'm hoping it's not going to be the worst year.
3: In fact, the week of January 30th was the worst week for avalanche fatalities in the U.S. since 1910, with 15 dead. And the season is far from over.
4: You know, it's a pretty amazing natural hazard in that uh, you have a person that goes across a, a snow slope and can release maybe thousands of tons of debris that goes rolling down the hill. Uh, One of the accidents we had this last week, uh, the avalanche itself, the the break in the snow was uh, over 3,000 feet wide. Um, And that's triggered by a person.
3: That sort of risk-taking can now have legal consequences. In Colorado, Two snowboarders are facing reckless endangerment charges for causing an avalanche above I seventy. Yeah. If there's a high avalanche risk, do you generally shut down uh, public public lands?
4: Typically, we don't do that. Part of our culture in the United States, and certainly the Western United States, um, has a high degree of uh, value on freedom and personal responsibility. So these are our public lands. They're there for everybody to enjoy. Um, and that's a wonderful thing uh, for all of us to have access to, and and with that uh, freedom to use those lands comes the responsibility to, you know, take care of ourselves and then also take care of the other people in our our communities.
3: So viewer, beware. If you're pushing the boundaries, you're on your own. What are the best ways to survive an avalanche? It's kind of like
12: asking, what do I do if I get in a car wreck? (laughs) You know, And the answer is there's not much you can do because, you know, these things are really, really dangerous. And by the time you've triggered that avalanche, um, you've already made all the mistakes.
2: LeVar Burton is a veteran actor who's played a variety of roles and gathered an equally wide variety of fans along the way. Moraka has a Sunday profile.
13: When you walk down the street mm-hmm. and you see that somebody from a distance recognizes mm-hmm. you, can you size them up and mm-hmm. say, "She's going to know me from Reading Rainbow, Star Trek?" Mm. Yeah. There are three kinds of TV watchers. Those who first met Lavar Burton as Kunta Kinte in the landmark miniseries Roots. Uh-huh. Then we have to adjust the vector processor. Those who came to know him for his role on Star Trek The Next Generation. And those who grew up on Burton, watching him host PBS's Reading Rainbow. What is television to you? Simply
14: the most powerful medium in the history of civilization for communicating thoughts, ideas, and stories.
13: Burton, whom we met before the pandemic, says it was his mentor. Please won't you be my neighbor? Children's TV giant and ordained Presbyterian minister Fred Rogers, who shaped his understanding of what television can do.
14: He taught me that it was okay to use television as a ministry, that it was possible to enlighten while entertaining,
13: that the two don't cancel each other out. In fact, Burton originally planned to spend his life in religious ministry. When he was just 13, he entered the seminary in Sacramento, intending to become a Catholic priest. Just the feeling
14: of awe and reverence that being in a church, there are always really quiet environments. And the pomp and
13: circumstance, too, you know. It's theatrics. But Burton eventually decided to pursue a career in the actual theater. And so his mother, an English teacher, took a second job, waitressing in a nightclub, to help her son through USC. During his sophomore year, he answered an open call for a television miniseries. It was his very first audition.
14: There was an America before Roots and there was an America after Roots. And the America after Roots was aware that, that this nation was founded
13: on a system that was brutal. Roots based on the Alex Haley novel, began with the kidnapping of a Mandinka tribesman, played by Burton.
14: It was a big deal for us because finally our story was being told from our point of view, right? The story of slavery in America had never been told from the point of view of the enslaved before.
13: It aired over eight consecutive nights in January 1977.
14: One thirty. The reason why Roots was broadcast in eight consecutive nights of programming was because the network was nervous that nobody would tune in.
13: But over 100 million Americans ended up watching. Edward Asner, Lauren Green, John Amos. Roots featured an all-star cast. Earl Ives, Lewis Gossett Jr. Introducing... But newcomer Lavar Burton became the face of it.
14: Slavery still exists today. Mass incarcerations of of young men of color, um, the relationship between the black community and law enforcement, all of these social issues are rooted in slavery. And America is still grappling with that.
13: With the massive success of Roots came celebrity for Burton. Your washing machine spots on game shows. Your dryer. Yes!
10: It's great to have you here. It was,
13: it was a, Talk shows. was a super show, and uh, I think you're well on your way probably to go any direction you want to go now.
10: Hmm,
14: straight up, please. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd rather go for the win, but uh, at the same time, I'd love to see Conrad in the drink. <laughs> you're <up.
13: You> <laughs> naturally, he served during the Battle of the Network Stars. I love you, LeVar. I love you. The opportunities immediately post roots
14: were the opportunities of a celebrity. Did you like the celebrity aspect? I loved it.
13: I loved it. I mean, I had joined the popular culture. An avid science fiction fan, Burton, in 1987, assumed the role of Geordie LaForge in Star Trek The Next Generation. Gene Roddenberry's
14: vision was one that included me and people who looked like me. It meant that
13: when the future comes, there's a place for you. An inclusive vision, yes, but the character of Geordie was blind And for most of the run, Burton performed with a visor covering his eyes. And how do you act without your eyes? That's what I had to figure out. I use
14: my body. I use my voice. How did this happen? I was born that way. And your parents let you live? What kind of question is that? Of course they let me live. I really had to develop other ways of communicating everything that I wanted the audience to know about that character. It's one of my favorite fables,
13: the tortoise and the hare. But his longest professional ride, over 20 seasons, has been as host of PBS's literacy program, Beating Rainbow.
14: Everything that I have done in the field of literacy is um, tribute to my mother.
15: Take a look, it's in a book.
14: As the son of an English teacher, to have been part of an effort to Turn kids who know how to read in the readers for life. Um, it feels pretty good. Please put your hands together for Mr. Levar Burton. When they were children,
13: over the years, Burton's read for groups large. Rhino
14: looked at his world, all tattered and torn, and small. That there are always people there to help us through the tough times. Squeezed him, and more recently recorded a hit
13: podcast.
14: I'm LeVar Burton, and this is called simply LeVar
13: Burton Reads. It turns out there are a lot of adults who want LeVar Burton to read to them.
14: Absolutely. The cupboard was empty
13: except for macaroni and pumpkin pie filling. LeVar Burton is 64 now and a grandfather and married to makeup artist Stephanie Kozart since 1992.
14: Hey, thank you all for coming.
13: In June 2019, Burton returned to Sacramento for the dedication of a park named after him.
2: We are making this LeVar Burton Day, and this will be LeVar Burton Park. Yeah. Yeah.
13: Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Just the latest honor in a life filled with accolades and driven by purpose. Yeah, it seems like all these things you've handled with such grace. Um... Thanks.
14: Um, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm, I've lived an amazingly charmed existence. I really have.
2: Um, and I'm grateful. For 17 seasons, fans of the TV show Grey's Anatomy have watched Alan Pompeo's character graduate from intern to surgeon. This morning, she's out of the hospital and in conversation with Tracy Smith. So you had this garden before COVID? I did,
16: yes, luckily.
6: You might not know that Ellen Pompeo oh, is quite the home gardener. This is amazing. Why did you decide to set this up?
7: Um, I You know, I grew up with gardens as a kid. Should we go in?
6: Yeah. Last week, we got a tour of the nursery shed.
7: I have parsley and cilantro. This is all my herbs.
6: Outside the Los Angeles home, she shares with her husband and three kids.
7: Oregano is really good. Um, they say it's like, it has antiviral properties. So like oregano oil for flu and colds is really good. But I just like chew on the leaves. And... You chew oregano? Yep, I you chew You are, are an oregano. Italian girl. I am an Italian girl. <laughs> I say I... Cook like an Italian and tell a story like an Irish.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Of course, she's a lot better known for something else she's been helping to grow for the past 17 years. That's one of us down there. The first one of us. Where's your loyalty? Her show, ABC's Grey's Anatomy, happens to be the longest-running primetime medical drama on American TV. 17 seasons and counting.
4: Dr. Quick, he's sick. he's sick. What happened?
2: By
6: comparison, Dr. Kildare only lasted five years. The landmark CBS series MASH ran for 11.
13: People just sluggish.
14: Ophthalmoscope.
6: And the perennial favorite ER said goodbye after 15 seasons.
7: So pick me. Choose me. Love me.
6: As the show's title character, Dr. Meredith Gray... Ellen Pompeo has survived all manner of calamity and heartbreak. But this season, Dr. Gray herself has COVID-19.
7: Do I choose? Do I get to decide if I go back? And
6: in recent episodes, she's been drifting in and out of a dream sequence from which she may or may not awaken. And now millions of fans are on pins and needles waiting to see if Dr. Gray and her namesake show lives or dies. Are you looking now... And I'm not trying to make you give anything away.
7: But are <laughs> yes, you are. not course, you are. Not, I I you are. Everybody does. I okay, can't maybe say. maybe a little. Can't no. say. we honestly have not decided. We're really trying to figure it out right now. You're um, in the middle of deciding whether it ends or it yeah, doesn't. Yes, it's, it, it's it's what story do we tell to end a show, this iconic? How you know? How do we do it? I just want to make sure we do this character and this show and the fans. I want to make sure we do it right. Derek. And you can
6: bet it'll be heart-stopping. It's okay. For her, emotion seems to come naturally. Born in a working-class Boston suburb, Ellen Pompeo had, by her own admission, a melancholy childhood.
7: I was quite sad as a child. I think people might have, you know, my sisters or my family might have other impressions of me. But I definitely, you know, had a very sad childhood because I lost my mother when I was four. So that shapes your entire existence, I think.
6: How does something that traumatic affect a kid? I mean, how did it affect you?
7: I think it probably made me want to get out of there. You know, that place represented sadness for me. So I thought maybe anywhere but there would be better. And luckily for me, I found a way to monetize all my emotion. You know? (laughs) Well. Chandler and I used to make out a lot,
6: like most struggling actors. Are you my deadhead? Pompeo's first on-screen roles were mostly small and often forgettable. That is, until her agent convinced her to stop taking bit parts and do a TV pilot for a medical show.
7: I got cut out of a bunch of movies. So then it came to a point where then I needed money. So I did The Gray's pilot
6: because you needed money. my
7: agent said you know what I said I don't want to be stuck on a medical show for six years I don't think I'll be happy I think I'll be bored and he said you know Ellen just take the job it's gonna last you know a month six weeks at best and these things never go so I said oh they don't he said no no it'll just be a job and you'll be right back to being broken unemployed and complaining in a couple of months and I said okay I need to feel as valued as you say you value me I need to be able to look in the mirror This is just not enough. Do
6: you have a number in mind? And now, 17 years later, Pompeo says she's learned just what she's worth to the network and how to ask for it. You are one of the highest-paid actors on TV,
7: and I would imagine that I know that didn't come easy. No. (laughs) Of course not. But in my specific instance, I had a very specific number that i can see what gray's anatomy has generated i can see exactly how much that show makes for one of the biggest corporations in the world
6: and her end of the deal is reported to be 20 million dollars a year
7: gray yeah
6: well done and as for what comes next, Pompeo says even she doesn't know. I mean, as we sit here, we don't know whether Meredith is alive or dead, basically. Right. We
7: don't know. I'm in that wing. You're
6: in that wing. Yeah. You really don't know at this point. I mean,
7: you know, we, we have choices. This is not bad for a girl from Everett, Mass. No, no, it's not bad.
6: But no matter what happens on the show this season, Ellen Pompeo will, to some at least... Always be Dr. Meredith Gray, and she, in a way, will live forever. It's a blessing, of course. You're on a hit show. But at the same time, you do have to kind of go, okay, now I'm in this box, what what comes next? How do I find my way out?
7: Yeah, I guess you could look at it like that. I looked at myself as if I was in a box when I was uh, 35 years old. Now I'm 50, and I would never look at myself that way. So with age comes wisdom. And now how do you see it? And now how do I see it? Well, I could do anything I want. (laughs) Or not do anything at all.
2: (laughs) Time for Steve Hartman with a question. Are dogs really man's best friend? The
8: Ramapo-Bergen Animal Refuge in New Jersey is a shelter of last resort. Megan Brinster runs the place.
5: Our purpose is really to take the ones that don't have anywhere else to go, Um, and that was Sadie.
8: Sadie was a big German shepherd, nearly 100 pounds, and she wasn't great with men, which is why three other shelters turned her away and why Brian Myers Good girl. adopted her.
10: I thought, let me give this dog a chance because she's beautiful and I think I can work through her issues.
8: So at the time, you thought you were rescuing her.
10: Yes, absolutely.
8: Little did he know, he was saving his savior. Um,
10: I was very lucky to have her on the night that I had the stroke. As soon as I stood up here, I fell straight down. Brian lives alone. And my cell phone was over there.
8: So Sadie was his only hope.
10: And that's when I grabbed her collar and she pulled me out of this little space here.
8: Pulled him all the way across the room to his phone.
10: As far as I know, she's never been trained as a service dog or anything. How do you explain this? I can't. You're so
8: pretty. Megan thinks she can She says rescue dogs are often incredibly loyal.
5: When you have a dog who's lost something, all the dogs that come here have lost a family, a person, or they never quite had that. So when they make that connection, you really become their world.
8: Good girl. Brian says Sadie does constantly track him. And obviously, she was at her post that night he needed her most. Brian was rushed here to Englewood Health in Englewood, New Jersey. He spent a couple weeks in treatment and rehab. And just before his release, he got a visitor, a very grateful visitor
10: she just immediately jumped on me and was kissing my face knocked my glasses and my mask off and i just thought i love this dog
8: and you don't need to be dr doolittle to hear sadie reply i love you too good girl
10: this is her favorite spot
2: Many of the headlines about the Me Too movement tell stories of women who worked in ostensibly glamorous fields, the movies, and the media. Less often heard are the stories of women alleging harassment in more workaday locations. Here's Erin Moriarty. He would make comments on my
15: body and other workers' bodies, saying, like, I would have sex with you, I wouldn't have sex with her. First, it was like, oh, you have nice hair, start touching my hair.
5: And then it was like physical when he actually started grabbing my butt. Any woman that he could get his hands on or be near, he was taking advantage of that moment.
16: Young women from across the country with remarkably similar accounts of workplace abuse and harassment at one of America's largest fast food restaurant chains
15: it kind of made me feel isolated. I kind of thought that I was just the only one this is happening to right now. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I just felt completely alone.
16: Kimberly Lawson, (laughs) Jamelia Fairley, Kat Barber, and Emily Annabelle have all either filed discrimination charges or filed suit against McDonald's corporate restaurants or their independently owned franchises. Each tells a story of persistent and unwanted harassment from male co-workers
5: the tongs that we use to like make the food he'd use those to like grab me grab my breasts did he do that when it's just the two of you or did other people see this going on he didn't try to hide it at all it was in front of everybody it is hard to believe that in this day and age that it's still happening this egregiously this out in the open jillian
16: thomas is a senior attorney with the aclu She says hundreds of female employees have been subjected to sexual harassment at McDonald's restaurants, as described in as many as 100 lawsuits and charges of discrimination. The other piece that's especially shocking at McDonald's, which of course bills
3: itself as America's best first job, is how young the victims are, 15, 16, 17 years old.
16: So you're not saying this only happens at McDonald's?
3: Oh, far from it. The food service industry generally is is one of the worst for sexual harassment claims.
16: Last year, in a survey of nearly 800 female workers at McDonald's restaurants and franchises, three-quarters said they were harassed at work. In that same survey commissioned by unions, a majority said that they suffered consequences for reporting the behavior. But a company spokesman disputes the findings, saying the sample size was too small and not consistent with what we're seeing in McDonald's restaurants. And yet, there are stories like Jamelia Fairley's.
15: After I reported my harassment, they gave me 11 hours to 15 hours, and I couldn't work with those
16: hours. It wasn't enough. It wasn't helping me keep my place. In late 2018, Fairley, then 24 years old and a single mom, was working at a corporate-owned McDonald's in Florida when she says a new co-worker began making lewd comments and touching her. When he first touched me, I told him to keep his hands to himself, like, don't touch me. And what was his reaction when you said that? He um, thought it was a joke. Did other people see this happening? Yes,
15: and he was doing it to other women at my McDonald's as well. I wasn't the only one.
16: Fairly reported the behavior to both the supervisor and the general manager. And yet, she says, that didn't end the offensive behavior.
15: It even got worse to the point where he pushed me, like, he grabbed me into his grown area. Managers were standing there watching him do it, like, and they didn't do nothing about it.
16: He was eventually transferred to another store, she says but not until Fairley reported another incident with a different co-worker.
15: This particular comment, he, like, really made me really upset because he um he had asked me how much would it be to um, have sex with my
16: daughter at the time, and she was only one year old, so... That employee was fired. Fairley stayed. She says she needed the job. So that I could provide a roof over her head.
4: And that's why now is the right time to have this conversation.
16: In this corporate video, McDonald's new CEO says the company wants to be a leader when it comes to values.
4: We do the right thing for the right reasons. I love that phrase because it hits you in the gut. Everybody knows what it means to do the right thing.
16: In late 2019, the company did put out an extensive new policy for dealing with sexual harassment in its corporate stores. But 95% of McDonald's are independently owned franchises, and there the policy is only a resource, not a requirement. And this is how some past employees describe the sexual harassment training they received.
15: My orientation was a lady. <laughs> she sat across from me. She had a stack full of paper. She said, here, we're going to run through this really fast.
16: Kimberly Lawson worked at a McDonald's franchise in Kansas City in 2017 and 2018.
15: I need you to just sign and date everything so we can
16: get this done. Do you know whether you signed something that did list the policy having to do with complaints like sex harassment and what you do if you do encounter it?
15: I have no idea.
16: We heard the same story over and over again.
15: I never got taught um, any training on that at all. I don't remember any training on that or hearing about
3: that.
5: There was a page in the policy book that I signed, but no one, you know, went through it with me. So a policy that's on a piece of paper stuck in a handbook that is never actually lived in the work
16: environment is worthless. Which may be how a worker in a McDonald's franchise in Mesa, Michigan, was able to harass colleagues there for years.
9: This is a case where there was a serial harasser, a serial predator.
16: Eve Cervantes is an employment lawyer suing McDonald's and the franchise.
9: He harassed, you know, every woman who was there, basically.
16: Emily Annabelle was 17 years old when she went to work at that McDonald's in April 2016 and encountered Sean Banks, a shift manager. How often would he be making comments or touching somebody? Pretty much every shift for most of the shifts. Did you think you just had to put up with it? Yeah, that was kind of the
10: environment, I think, that was built at that restaurant is that this is normal, and if you don't like it,
16: then you can leave. She finally did leave in the spring of 2017. Five months later, when Kat Barber, then 18, started working there, Banks was still a manager.
5: He used to call me a bitch, a ugly, I was fat. I told him to stop. And would he? No, he would, if anything, it made him persist more. Barber says
16: she reported the behavior to the general manager.
5: I normally would either get a laugh, get told that I was being dramatic.
16: In September 2018, she too quit her job.
5: In the end, what made you leave? It was way too much to watch not only others get sexually harassed, but also get myself get sexually harassed. It was causing such an impact in my life personally. Even when I was looking for new work, I was having like anxiety about whether someone at that work was going to be sexually harassing me.
16: Sean Banks did not respond to our request for an interview. The owner of the franchise, through an attorney, declined to answer written questions. Isn't this just a matter of one bad apple? It's really not about one bad
9: apple. The problem is not just that you have a harasser, it's that you have a harasser who is not being stopped.
16: After Annabelle and Barber, along with several other women, filed suit, the franchise owner sold its stores. McDonald's could say, how are we going to be able to monitor the environment in every single one of these McDonald's? First of all, McDonald's
9: actually does impose a great deal of control on its franchises. You go to McDonald's anywhere in the country, they manage to have the exact same hamburgers and fries. So they do actually have a lot of control. So McDonald's Corporation could certainly be training these general managers about sexual harassment, and about how to handle it.
16: In its statement to CBS News, McDonald's says that it makes training available to its franchisees and has made a hotline available for all franchisees to provide to their employees. If McDonald's is held liable in the cases filed by these women, the damages may not be substantial. None was making more than $14 an hour. (laughs) But in a job that some see as inconsequential, Jamelia Fairley says she is finally being seen and heard. Do you have regrets sometimes
15: about complaining? No, I have no regrets about complaining at all. I feel like I stood up for myself. I stood up for my daughter. I stood up for other women who he was bullying. I feel like I I was making a difference.
2: Lest we forget. Here's Jim Gaffigan.
11: My anniversary's coming up, and I still haven't gotten my wife anything. I know, I know, I'm horrible. But how do you celebrate a full year of living with the coronavirus? I guess inviting friends for a party is not a good idea. Should I get my wife a mask, sweatpants, bleach? Can you believe we've all been living in a pandemic for a whole year? That's right. Only 12 months ago, we used to do strange things with friends like shake hands or hug or meet them for dinner without the fear of causing people to die. Just one year. It's amazing how time really doesn't fly by. It may have been a grueling 12 months, but I'd like to focus on the positives for a moment. Okay, enough of that. No, really, the last 12 months have been interesting, but I'd be lying if I didn't admit that I've learned a couple things. That should be good enough. I've found that cooking for my family on a nightly basis over the past year has resulted in me being still not a good cook. I discovered if I don't eat a huge block of cheese and drink a half a bottle of bourbon at midnight, I won't wake up feeling horrible the next morning. I find I have to keep discovering that lesson. I've discovered that getting online groceries delivered takes longer than actually shopping for groceries in person. I've learned that using talk-to-text is the most efficient way to get on someone's nerves
7: oh, sorry,
13: that was supposed to be for my sister.
11: And finally, and most importantly, after spending just about every moment of every day over the past 12 months with my five children, I've learned I no longer fear that Harry Chapin song. When you're
13: coming home, Dad, I
2: don't know when But we'll get
13: together then You know we'll have a good time
8: then
11: Happy anniversary, everyone.
2: Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning.
0: If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music.